That is how I first perceived his work myself. Only the creator of the labyrinth institutes it otherwise, there being no end to the labyrinth, for it is infinite, at which junction one lights upon the awful discovery that neither is there a creator. But I do not like a labyrinth so well as a chasm or an abyss into which Newton by virtue of his system of the world and falling bodies and mathematics and chronology, lowers us upon a rope, which is a more precarious situation wherein gravity may do its invisible work. Invisible work? Newton knew all about that. His theory of gravity, of course. His interest in alchemy, for example. And ciphers, too. When I told Dr. Clark how Newton had believed that a man who might decipher an earthly code might similarly fathom the heavenly one, I could have told Clark such a story of codes and ciphers and secrets as would have made his wig smoke. But no, Dr. Clark would not have had the patience to hear such a story as mine, for it is a difficult tale. Moreover, I lack the practice in its recounting, since it has not been told before this day. Newton himself swore me to secrecy about this dark matter, as he himself called it. Yet now that the great man is dead, I can see no reason not to tell someone. But who, and how would I have begun? I fear I am too cool to have mastered the unaffected eloquence and noble, simple style of history that would hold anyone's attention for very long, and I must confess there is much about my own history that I have forgotten. It is difficult for me to remember all of this. More than thirty years have passed, and there are many aspects to this story that seem to elude my grasp. But perhaps it is me who is lacking, or I do not find myself very interesting, and certainly not in comparison with Newton. How could I ever have thought to understand one such as he? But perhaps I might rehearse the matter in my own head, one day I should like this story to be known, and if I should happen to be bored, I shall simply order myself to desist, and I shall take no offence. I had little thought that in recalling this story I might need to write it down, and yet how else might I improve upon the telling of it, except by writing it? On Thursday, November the 5th, 1696, most people went to church, but I went to fight a duel. Gunpowder Day was then a cause for Protestant celebration twice over. This had been the day in 1605 when King James I had been delivered from a Roman Catholic plot to blow up the Parliament, and in 1688 it had also been the day when the Prince of Orange had landed at Torbay to deliver the Church of England from the oppressive hand of another Stuart, the Catholic King James II. Many Gunpowder Day sermons were preached throughout the city, and I would have done well to have listened to one of them, for a little consideration of heavenly deliverance might have helped me to channel my anger against papist tyranny instead of the man who had impugned my honour. But my blood was up, and my head being full of fighting, I and my second walked to Hyde Park to meet my opponent, Mr. Shear, who was already waiting with his own second. I no longer remember what my dispute with Shea was about, except to say that I was a quarrelsome sort of young man, and very likely there was fault on both sides. No apologies were solicited, and none proffered, and straight away all four of us threw off our coats and fell to with swords. 
I had some skill with the weapon, and I made short work of the matter, wounding Shea in the left pap, which, being close to his heart, placed the poor fellow in mortal fear of his life, and me in fear of prosecution, for dueling was against the law since 1666. Most gentlemen fighting paid but little heed to the legal consequences of their actions. However, Mr. Shea and myself were both at Gray's Inn, acquainting ourselves with a tincture of English law, and our quarrel was quickly the cause of a scandal that obliged my leaving off a career at the bar permanently. It was perhaps no great loss to the legal profession, for I had little interest in the law, and even less aptitude, for I had only gone to the bar to please my late father, who always had a great respect for that profession. And yet what else could I have done? We were not a rich family, but not without some connections either. My elder brother, Charles Ellis, who later became an MP, was then the under-secretary to William Lowndes, who was himself the permanent secretary to the First Lord of the Treasury. The treasurer, until his recent resignation, had been Lord Godolphin. Several months later the king named as Godolphin's replacement the then Chancellor of the Exchequer, Lord Montague, to whom Isaac Newton owed his appointment as Warden of the Royal Mint in May 1696. My brother told me that until Newton's arrival in the position there had been few, if any, duties that were attached to the wardenship, and Newton had taken the position in expectation of receiving the emolument for not much work, but that the great recoinage had given the office a greater importance than hitherto it had enjoyed, and that Newton was obliged to be the principal agent of the coin's protection. In truth, it was sore in need of protecting, for it had become much debased of late. The only true money of the realm was the silver coin, for there was little if ever much gold about, which constituted sixpences, shillings, half-crowns, and crowns. But until the great and mechanized recoinage, mostly this was hand-struck with an ill-defined rim that lent itself to clipping or filing. Fate took a hand to drive the coinage further out of order when, after William and Mary came to the throne, the price of gold and silver became greatly increased, so that there was much more than a shilling's worth of silver in a shilling or at least there ought to have been, a new-struck shilling weighed ninety-three grains, although with the price of silver increasing all the time it need only have weighed seventy-seven grains. And even more vexing was that with the coin so worn and thin and rubbed with age and clipped and filed, a shilling often weighed as little as fifty grains. Because of this, people were inclined to hoard the new coin and refuse the old. The Recoinage Act had passed through the Parliament in January 1696, although this only chafed the sore, the Parliament having been imprudent enough to damn the old money before ensuring that there existed sufficient supplies of the new. And throughout the summer, money had remained in such short supply that tumults every day were feared. For without good money, how were men to be paid, and how was bread to be bought? If all that was not subversion enough, to this sum of calamity was added the fraud of the bankers and the goldsmiths who, having got immense treasures by extortion, hoarded their bullion in expectation of its advancing in value. Much aware of my sudden need for a position and Dr. Newton's equally sudden need for a clerk, Charles prevailed upon Lord Montague to consider advancing me in Newton's favour for employment and by and by it was arranged that I should go to Dr. Newton's house in German Street to recommend myself to him. 
I remember the day well. Well, there was a hard frost and a report of more Catholic plots against the king, and a great search for Jacobites was already underway. But I do not remember that Newton's reputation had made much of an impression upon my young mind, for unlike Newton, who was a Cambridge professor, I was an Oxford man, and although I knew the classics, I could no more have disputed any general mathematical system, let alone one affecting the universe, than I could have discoursed upon the nature of a spectrum. I was aware only that Newton was one of the most learned men in England, although I could not have said why. Cards were my reading then, and pretty girls my scholarly pursuit, for I had studied women closely, and I was as skilled in the use of sword and pistol as some are with a sextant and a pair of dividers. In short, I was as ignorant as a jury unable to find a verdict. And yet, of late my ignorance had begun to weigh upon me. German Street was a recently completed and quite fashionable suburb of Westminster. At eleven o'clock I presented myself at Dr. Newton's door, was admitted by a servant and ushered into a room with a good fire in it, where Newton sat awaiting my arrival upon a red chair with a red cushion and a red Morocco-bound book. Newton struck me as a most wise-looking man. His nose was all bridge as across the Tiber, and his eyes which were quiet in repose, became as sharp as bodkins the minute his brow furrowed under the concentration of a thought or a question. His mouth looked fastidious, as if he lacked appetite and humour, and his dimpled chin was on the edge of finding itself joined by a twin. That day I met him first, he was just a month or so short of his fifty-fourth birthday. "'It is not my manner,' he said, "'to speak anything that is extraneous to my business, so let me come straight to the point, Mr. Ellis.' When I became warden of His Majesty's Mint, I little thought that my life should become taken up with the detection, pursuit, and punishment of coiners, clippers, and counterfeiters, but that being my discovery, I wrote to the Treasury Committee to the effect that such matters were the proper province of the Solicitor General, and that, if it were possible, to let this cup pass from me. Their lordships willed it otherwise, however, and therefore I must stand the course. Indeed, I have made this matter my own personal crusade, for if the great recoinage does not succeed, I fear that we shall lose this war with the French, and the whole kingdom shall be undone. But the business of my taking these rascals is so great, there being so many of them, I find I have sore need of a clerk to assist me in my duties. But I want no truckle-head milksop in my service. God knows what disorders we may fall into, and whether any violence may be done on this office or upon our persons. For coining being high treason, carries the harshest penalty, and these miscreants are a desperate lot. You look like a young man of spirit, sir, but speak up and recommend yourself. I do believe, I said nervously, because Newton sounded very like my own father, who always expected the worst of me, and usually he was not disappointed, that I should say something to you in reference to my education, sir. I have my degree from Oxford, and I have studied for the law. Good, good, Newton said impatiently. Likely you will need a quick pen. What of your other skills? I searched myself for an answer. What other skills did I possess? And finding myself at a loss for words, I began to grimace and shake my head and shrug. Come, sir, insisted Newton. Did you not pink a man with your rapier? Yes, sir, I stammered, angry with my brother for having apprised him of this awkward fact, for who else could have told him? Excellent! Newton knocked the table once as if keeping score. And a keen shot, I see. Perceiving my puzzlement, he added, 
Is that not a gunpowder spot on your right hand? Yes, sir. And you're right. I, I shoot both carbine and pistol tolerably well. But you are better with the pistol, I'll warrant. Did my brother tell you that, too? No, Mr. Ellis. Your own hand told me. A carbine would have left its mark on your hand and face, but a pistol only upon the back of your hand, which did lead me to suppose that you have used a pistol with greater frequency. Well, that's a nice check, sir. I am chumped. I have others here besides. Doubtless we shall have to visit many a kennel where your apparent fondness for the ladies may serve us good advantage. I trust that your fondness for the dark-haired woman you were so recently with might permit such stratagems as would gain us information. Perhaps she was the one who did bring you the juniper ale? Well, if that isn't Pam, I proclaimed quite trumped by this, for I had indeed embraced the wench with brown hair that very morning over breakfast at my local tavern. How did you know she was dark, and that I had some juniper ale? By virtue of the long dark hair that adorns your handsome ventre d'or waistcoat, explained Newton. It proclaims her colouring just as surely as your conversation demonstrates your close acquaintance with the card table. We shall have need of that, too. As much as we shall have need of a man who likes his bottle, if I am not wrong, sir, that is red wine on your cuffs. No doubt you had a good deal of it to drink last night, which is why you were a little sick in your stomach this morning, and why you had need of some juniper ale for your gripes. The smell of that pungent oil in ale upon your breath is most unmistakable. I heard myself gasp with astonishment that so much of me was plain to him, as if he could see into my mind and read my own thoughts. You make me sound the most consummate rake-hell that was ever drawn to the gallows, I protested. I know not what to say. I, I am quite out-huffed. Pray, Mr. Ellis, said Newton, don't take on so. The business of the mint requires that I have a man who knows his way around London. That being the case, and to fret you no longer, the position is yours if you want it. The pay is not much, just sixty pounds a year to start, which does not sort well with me, so I have decided to offer my clerk the warden's house at the mint in the Tower of London with all the benefits that do pertain to living there. That is very generous, sir, said I, beginning to grin like an idiot, for this was more than I could ever have expected. Since leaving Gray's Inn, I had taken lodgings in King Street, Westminster, but these were poor quarters, and my heart leapt at the thought of the whole house to myself, especially one within the liberties of the Tower, for there a man might avoid taxation altogether. Upon my arrival at the Mint last April, I lived there for a while myself before coming here to German Street in August. The truth is the Mint is...